You are listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. There's a TH thing going on there, which is obviously a little bit of a struggle. Thur. Is it? Thur- thoroughly? Was it, was, <laughs> is it bad? I ask everybody that, and a number of people do struggle with the TH. Because a lot of what them is are, the... are not British, you see. So. What am I doing? No, no, I'm not, I'm not criticising. I'm just saying that I, I notice that the TH in the word is difficult for a lot of people. Do you want to say it again? <laughs> can, you, can you instruct me, though? Because I, I um, thought it was... <laughs> you're listening to the Thoroughly Good, Thoroughly Thor- Good Classical Music Podcast. Thoroughly Good. Is that... That's it, yeah. Thoroughly... <laughs> you are listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Everyday conversations between artist and audience member that highlights, demystifies and celebrates the classical music art form. You can gain exclusive early access to each podcast episode, plus a whole host of other benefits and trinkets by signing up to Thoroughly Good on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good. I need you to tell me who you are and what you do. Oh, who are you and what you do? The simple who am I? Yeah. Not the... Okay. I am Tessa Lark. Is that what you mean? <laughs> You're looking to me I? to confirm your name. I'm Tessa Lark? Yeah. yeah. I am Tessa Lark. I am a violinist. And can you give me the name of your album, please, Tessa Lark? Yes. Um, T- Tessa Lark's album is Fantasy. Okay. <laughs> and it was recorded with Amy Ng on piano. Um, so if I put that there... <laughs> Uh, oh, I hope. Can you hear my gum chewing? I can. <laughs> um, tell me what you had for lunch, because obviously you've just eaten. Yes, I had salmon. Well, I say obviously. It's not that I can see it around your mouth. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me. You say it's no. I had salmon at uh, what's that restaurant at the Royal Albert Hall just down the road? Oh, you went there. Yes. Oh, with did the you BBT upstairs? Team. Yes. Right. Okay. We went upstairs. Yeah. How did you have your salmon? Um. I had it with a fork. No, it's not a trick question. I wondered whether you had it fried or poached (laughs) or roasted. Um, You know, it was topped with this sort of pesto, so it was hard to see how it was done, but it might have been baked. Sort of a a green gravel type affair. Yeah, Yeah. it was quite nice with a pea puree beneath. Yeah, and pickled garlic, which I'd never had before. Okay, and how did you through that? How did that work? Well, it looked like garlic cloves. I couldn't tell quite if it was also baked. Right. Um, but then I tasted it, and it was very vinegary, so I just assumed that it was pickled, <laughs> which I quite liked. <laughs> well, I ate it, and you can tell me if you notice or not, but right. it seemed no, like... You, no, you're fine. The, you're fine, don't worry. <laughs> the pickledness sort of got rid of that pungency uh, I'm used your, to. Was that your first time at the Royal Albert Hall, these Tessalar? I don't believe so. I was here, the first time I ever came to London was for the menu and competition, mm-hmm. and it was hosted here in 2003 or four, I right. believe. Yeah. And was that here? Where, where was the menu and competition? Was that at the It was at the school? Academy, I think, the right. Royal Academy, but there was an opening concert, and I think that was at the Royal Albert Hall, which is why... Were you competing or up. were you just participating in concerts? I was competing and, and I was go? unsuccessful. Oh, it was damn. my it was my first international competition. Oh. But I met who would become one of my main mentors and motherly figure, Miriam Fried. She was a jury member that year. Right. So it really changed my life. Uh, how did it change your life? Well, I met her. She was one of the only judges who actually voted um, in favor of me. Yes. Yeah, I think there were like 12 jury members, and she was one of two. Do you remember the names of the other ones? I bet you do. Um, Mayumi Zweig, I think was her name, but also uh, the two female judges, um, American too, or, or Mayumi is maybe from Canada. But anyway, right. they voted yes, but for you, me. Clearly, you remember the positive people, not the negative people. That's basically what I was trying to Well, remember. I do remember some of the, the negative vote, But they weren't all negative to me. But there right. were a couple that said, yeah, I guess you could keep playing violin. You might be okay. <laughs> Is that what they said? <laughs> yeah. It was really, yeah. Oh. Like, yeah, it brought tears to my eyes. And it was, that's, I'm, you know, you're very impressionable at 
early teenage years. But so essentially, the, the the message from some people was, you know, you could carry on, but yeah, they'd say good luck to you, you know, yeah. But then there were just a couple, like, and Miriam was one of them, and she said, I really hear a unique voice in you, and wow, yeah. How old were you when when you did that? If you don't mind me asking. No, not at all. I think I was thirteen or fourteen years That's old. That's tough feedback to get. Yeah, and I was, you know, yeah, it was after a period of time when I had largely only encouraging teachers, mm-hmm. so to get really tough criticism like that was new to me. Which <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh, is just, how this competition works. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, oh my gosh. How did you handle it? How did you deal with it? Did um, you sob, or did you just process it in an adult fashion? <laughs> I don't know, I'm genuinely interested. Yeah, um, I guess I was... Pretty well. My my mother was with me, which was helpful, and she's um, very wise. And so she sort of said, "Of course, this sucks, <laughs> but also it's not a big deal." At the same time, so I think I, in person, I handled it well, and then I maybe sobbed in the corner on my own. Did she? Did she become primal mother? Did she? Did she become sort of almost one of the Valkyries? <laughs> protect you from the, from the hideousness. She, she's she's pretty protective, but she also let me you know have the experience too. Mm. My teacher was there as well and support, so I had a good support system. Good. Um, and I re- I remember it was it was very it affected me a lot at the time, but looking back on it, it was a good um, experience for resilience. So I would do it again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Only you can't Masochist. now. I don't think you can. Oh, do but there it now, are definitely you? ways to find the same type of criticism. <laughs> Where can you find that kind of criticism now, then? Oh my gosh, I'm sure just <laughs> any which corner, you know. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But you're bra- you're braced for it. Yeah, I'm ready. I've I've built the armor. <laughs> um, this, so this is your second time in London. Uh, no, I've, I've been here a few times since. Okay, why are you in London now? We need to cover that, really. Yes. Really? Well, I was... <laughs> Otherwise, this could just be a rambling conversation. Yeah, I was um, gifted, it seemed at random, a Berletti Butoni Trust Fellowship um, in 2018, which is largely what has brought me back to London a few times since then. Um, and almost only that, so I'm grateful for, for BBT to... Um, bring me overseas a little bit. Um, I've been also to Amsterdam. I played at um, the Concertgebouw for one of their Wednesday morning um, coffee concerts, which was really fun. But other than that, that's largely the only stuff that's brought me to London is Berletti Bitoni, and um, they helped me finally released my first ever CD. You make it sound as though it's been a, a long time coming. Well, it, it truly was, because in 2016 I recorded this thing, and here we are in 2019, um, and finally I found a record label thanks to BBT, and I just got such cold feet, and a lot of us are perfectionists as musicians, I'm sure you know this, and so when you're just sitting there and editing a CD and listening to every tiny detail, you just think, Gosh, maybe I, maybe I suck. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't put this out into the world. This so. is meant to be PR, Tessa. Oops. <laughs> Excuse my French. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, so in the editing process, I mean, just everything is put under a microscope, yeah. so it's quite daunting. And it was my first process editing a CD, right. um, and people assured me for years you know sitting on this master disc you know that no this is really great and you should release it somehow and say yeah yeah okay and then I would sit and twiddle my thumbs and sort of my teeth would be chattering it's just really afraid of having this permanent um reference of a time in my life you know of of this audio recording it was it's just an it was a new thing to me i was terrified of having a recording out in the world but now that it's finally out there i'm so relieved and i've made like three recordings since then and now you can't keep me away from the recording (laughs) studio the way that you're talking about it makes me think that you probably don't like using social media well i the funny thing is i don't but People seem to like the things that I post, so I'm kind of stuck in this place of And how would you describe doing what you it? post? <laughs> well, I'm largely, mostly on the Instagram platform. We'll see how long that lasts. 
But um, so it's it's video and pictures, and I like to write um, meteor sort of captions along uh-huh. with that. So it's a means in a way for me to do miniature blogs. You're so, a diarist. A little bit, I guess so. No one's called me that before, but um, and it's brought a lot of young people to my concerts. They say I love the things you post on Instagram, or I get even um, direct messages from young people, and they say I'm so glad you talked about this issue. I'll talk about you know either stage fright or burnout or, or really serious topics um, that are maybe more personal, but I'm pretty sure are global so I like to share them and it's amazing um, the community that sort of arises from that and the people that reach out to me and thank me for you know expressing these things from what they um, view as a pedestal when for me it's just ugly real life <laughs> you know I just wanted really to share selling. it with them you're really I know yeah I'm sorry yeah in advance I'm just yeah I'm not really gonna <laughs> So you don't see yourself as in a, on a pedestal. You see performance as a slightly ugly, ugly experience. Is that, is that well, I see every part of my life, you know, and I, I know for social media, everybody's trying to show the best parts of their life, the glossy, you know, um, appealing aspects of it. But I'm, um, I'm, I'm assuming that no matter how far you get, in life, it's always challenging, and there are always going to be these ugly sides of it. Or I'd rather, I always think that um, I'd much rather review, uh, reveal the the crushing banality of everyday life. So uh, you, on, so on you social relate media. to me. No, that's You're why I'm me asking a hard time, you. No, 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 but, I, <laughs> but I do understand what you mean. That's why I'm asking you because yeah. because I just think actually there's far it's far too easy to to try and project perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's much more pleasurable to sort of take people by surprise and go, look, I made a cake. <laughs> you know, that, that yeah. sort of... I, I, I love the banality of everyday life because everybody experiences it, but they just don't see it. Yeah, exactly. And it's actually kind of ironic because this year I even saw um, a blog post about this, that the fad and the fashion, the trend right now on social media is to show the grittier, raw side of your life. And so this um, sincerity or, or um, really honesty is um, in fashion oh, right thank now. Thank God for that. Yeah, <laughs> which is part of me is like, thank, thank God for that. But also part of me is like, oh, geez, but then there's going to be um, some fashion for that. You know, so, so people are packaging their honesty um, and they're branding it. And so then it becomes dishonest in a way. Do you know what I yes, mean? And yes, so I'm, I'm seeing people posting, you know, like if, if somebody's a fitness blogger, they, they post a picture of themselves, you know, fit and post gym. It's disgusting. And then at the end of the day, they say, but this is after my meal of, you know, pork and beans. And then they show their belly, you know, like two inches further out. And it's like, really? Like, really? Is that... Really real, and and then people post, they say, "Oh, that's so beautiful. You're being so real," but it it still seems staged. <laughs> right, right. So you're okay. So you're a perfectionist. You're all about authenticity. Yeah, but then you value authenticity so much, so much, and so. But then I'm trying to reckon with it because now authenticity is a fad. Yes. And so, how do you really post authentic material well, online when I, it's a fad? I think discerning discerning audience members will always know who the truly authentic people are that's that's kind of what I'm reassuring myself mm-hmm. well it's I guess I relate it to performance too um, I was I talk with people about this all the time that um, I would say a tr- an untrained ear would not notice the difference between you know a Stradivari violin versus a modern instrument but they might notice something regardless they'd say i don't know what it is but this is striking me as special or you know when a performance um, to a trained ear is really spectacular and to an untrained ear i think it's still going to be spectacular but they just won't understand why um and so i feel even with social media all of anybody's presence i think Anybody, no matter their training or, or their, you know, their path in life, they can detect if somebody's being sincere mm. or not. Mm. Um, 
So for me, no matter what I do, I just always want to make sure it's it's very sincere to me and that it truly resonates with me. And I'm not doing it for um, publicity's sake or to get more views, more numbers, more concerts, this and that. I mean, of course, we all want <laughs> more concerts, <laughs> but I just want to be sure that whatever I'm doing is true. Which is why you're honest. participating in this podcast interview, I'd suggest. <laughs> <laughs> Surely, surely that's why you're doing it. Have you done this before? <laughs> oh, yeah, loads. Oh, yeah. And I used to work in PR. I know how it works. Um, how do you know when you are achieving that in performance? Ooh. Ooh. That's a deep I question. I mean, you did kind of signpost that, so... You know. <laughs> how do I know I'm achieving that? Or how do you know um, when you're not achieving it? Mm. Maybe that's the easier question. Yeah, well, performance is... Um, that's tough because oftentimes, um, I mean, it truly is a job as um, as horrible as that sounds. I mean, how could making music be a job? It should be a passion. It should be your way of yeah, life. Yeah, you still got then, to eat, though, haven't you? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You've still got to eat. Money. And then, yeah. And then, and then there's certain days when you just don't sleep as well or something's not quite sitting right or you had bad news in the day and then you have to walk on stage and you just have to rally and it's um, as much as a lot of your life is in control or you're in control of a lot of your life there, there are things that are also out of your control and so then you have to just get on stage and you must deliver um, and so in those instances I just try and remind myself of why I got into music in the first place um, and I come from a folk background my father plays bluegrass banjo and I'm, um, I've always been grateful to be exposed to the community that's integral to folk music. A lot of the music is passed down by ear, and it's not on a page. And so because of that, you're required to have contact with other humans, you know. And so um, to remind myself of that on those, in those moments when I'm feeling like, you know, I'd rather be in my bed or, you know, with a glass of wine and... In a hot tub in bed or something. With a glass of wine. Yeah, and maybe my bed <laughs> okay. is a hot tub. I'm, I yeah. am judging you. I am judging <laughs> you. Um, okay. But, uh, but the blue glass thing is presumably, that explains the, the Michael Talk. Yes, Torquey. Oh, Torquey. Okay, yes. right. Which yeah. is spectacular. Thank it's you. It's a spectacular work because it's yeah. incredibly accessible and very lively. Yes, I hope uh, Michael is listening to it. Do you say that? Yeah. I'll, I'll email him. Yeah. thing I heard when I knew that we were going to do this it is uh, it is a very immediate work mm. yeah which is um, I get excited about that especially with new music because I think a lot of um, listeners that there's this preconceived notion that new quote classical music is inaccessible or takes mm, several mm. listens you know to to get the hang of it yeah. but um when i was working with 
Michael Torkey on this piece. And then when I got the score for the first time, I was just so excited because there are all sorts of things that a modern ear can relate to immediately, as you're saying. And I, I feel like that's just such an important thing to have in, in classical music today is brand new music that is instantly accessible and, and not to write off any of the other music that is more complex because there's a place for that too. But for me, because I come from the folk world, I am always looking for this music that is instantly relatable because I think that is important mm. to keep to keep classical music going and all of the great composers of our past were inspired by folk music. Um, and I think that's largely why they were often immediately successful back in their days. Of course, a lot of things have changed. It sounds uh, very complicated. Rhythmically, it sounds phenomenally com complicated. I mean, yeah. it's hugely entertaining, but it sounds like a very complicated melodic line. Is that, yeah, well, is that just like smoke and mirrors from your perspective, or is it? No, well, it is like the first movement is largely in just common time. Um, so it shouldn't be complicated, but what Michael did is that he, he took banjo picking patterns, which are really normal on a banjo, but because it's, it has this beautiful open tuning and major thirds, you can get away with things that are not typical on the violin. So it could, um, if executed poorly, I think that first movement could sound a little bit like Moore's code. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it is. It's a little random, and it's just a nice. But it is. A, but actually, when you say that, it, it, it strikes me, and and this goes for all of the other works, including the the second movement of the Oboe Concerto, which is just ravishing, stunning, but right? Yeah. It's all of the solo parts are very immediate. It's almost as though they're they're played very close to the mic, uh, uh -huh. and it's very assertive, and it's. There's no room for, you know, we're not, we're not being sheepish about this, we're doing it. I mean, that's the yep. sense I get from it. Was that deliberate? Yeah, I think that's, that's largely to do with Silas Brown, the engineer and producer. And um, he and Michael Torkey have worked a lot together. And so they, they sort of have uh, a groove that they get in. And so Silas knows what he wants and how that works with what Michael Torkey wants mm. in his recordings. Um, that was my first experience making a recording solo with orchestra. Oh, okay. So I largely left that up to them, and I'm just working on my own sound but I'm such but a you premiered that at the, at the beginning of the year didn't you yeah that was in January with yeah. the Albany Symphony I mean that was scary because the first um, the recording came after the very first two performances of the piece so I had to really <laughs> know it <laughs> but luckily Michael Torkey plays piano he always makes a piano reduction of his orchestral scores so we actually got to rehearse it and perform it together before the orchestral premieres wow. and the recordings um but i think there is a brilliance to the sound of the recording that um i associate with michael's music it's just very bright and yeah. and joyful and like you said it's sort of i mean if the recording were a page it pops right off the page or yes. just right out of your speakers or what have you but it's just kind of um He's super a, um, resplendent. I he, I can't pronounce the word. He's a, I can't pronounce it. Oh, synesthete. There is we that... are. You've done it. Yes. Yeah, I can't. I still can't pronounce it. But you've said it, so that's great. But the, he is, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he went through a period when he titled his pieces, you know, in colors, and it's fascinating working with him because though he doesn't talk in colors anymore, everything he says has a very distinct color to it. I remember once he said, um, in a sonata that I commissioned him for. Um, he said, this section should sound like pearls are flying all over the place, which is, you know, just white and just very brilliant and light. And then in sky, also blue, you know, obviously he's thinking, you know, expansive and the sky has very vivid colors. Or there's um, a moment in the first movement where he said, this should sound like you're drinking brandy by fire glow. So it's very warm, you know, red. Very evocative, and, almost short storytelling type stuff. Yeah, it's just <clears> such <throat> beautiful imagery. Um, so Does that help you as a performer? Oh, yes. Especially if you look at the piece, like you said, you know, it, it looks like Morse code too. I'm sure if you were to sort of 
impress all of the notes and somebody were reading braille it would actually say something <laughs> with all the notes that are on there but um when he when he depicts the music like that it's endlessly helpful also because of his minimalist style there are all these little um pockets of just very very small motivic moments very tiny bits of material but he's really thinking so large scale so when he says brandy by fire glow I'm, i just i think the lord because otherwise i'm thinking okay now this is the inversion yeah, of yeah, the yeah, first yeah, instance yeah. of this and that and it's not that at all he's really thinking of a huge landscape which is i think ultimately why he titled the piece sky because despite but all I, the details I, also, I, I wonder whether that goes some way to explain why i responded to it so immediately you know if he's writing in that way and if he's thinking in that kind of way and everybody's thinking in the same way when they play it then that sort of contributes to that sense of immediacy yes yeah and i um actually asked him he was speaking with a bunch of young composers i was just with him in um tucson because the symphony was a uh, co-commissioner of the piece and somebody asked him if he thought in stories and he said abstractly in a way that he did it's not programmatic necessarily but then i referenced these um analogies that he would make like the brandy by fire glow or pearls or you know he, he has all these vivid um some that i probably shouldn't share on the okay. podcast yeah okay well let's just but keep it really quiet. helpful yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and i asked him you know which comes first the material or the association with a memory and he said that the the feeling largely comes first or the image wow so in in that way um that that fascinates me most because it's like composers like Brahms or or Bach or or any of these greats that have such um, a perfect um, analysis or, or, or a perfect structure that you can analyze in their music. Even Mozart is that way, but but maybe he's he's more intuitive. But um, with with Torquay, he it comes from a really beautiful, creative, abstract place but then somehow he's able to put um an immaculate structure to such an ambiguous mm, idea mm. and that's endlessly fascinating yeah, to me absolutely um and that's, those are yeah that's magic that is that's wizardry i think it really is i just don't know how you do that i mean I, yeah. I know you can analyze how it's done but i just think wow just do more of that please let's just yeah, yeah, exactly. Do a lot more quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's wild because it's a thing you can't explain mm. really because with with Bach for instance, there are all these you know, there are these computer programs now that can sort of um vomit out a Bach-like piece but it's not that at all because it doesn't have the heart and the spirit to You're talking it. talking about artificial intelligence. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which, which doesn't vomit. Yeah, pardon the language. No, that's really good. I gave it. I gave it too much of a human quality. I suppose. It's really. It's really funny. Um, I just want to check the time. I've now checked the time. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you about last night. Which yes. Sounds a little dodgy when I say it like that. But can you tell me where you were playing, and what your impressions were of that concert experience? Yes, I was playing at uh, 22 Mansfield Street. I was playing at um, the home of Bob and Elizabeth Boaz, and they have a beautiful concert series that um, helps promote um, support for, for young artists, which is so beautiful. But the Berletti Bitoni Trust often has some of their young artists, uh, fellowship recipients, perform there. Um, and so BBT and Bob invited me to play There's a little house concert. There. There's a lot yeah, of bees, yeah. There? BBT Were there any and Bob. BBT, BBT and Bob. Bob? I also played some Bach and oh Bartok. The program it was a blast. <laughs> I hope it was beautiful. <laughs> okay, enough now. No, enough. It's just Is popping that all enough? over the yeah, place. Yeah, bounty, bounty of bees. Wow. <laughs> didn't expect we'd go there uh, tell, can you describe the interior though because there's something about the interior that's quite striking I think yeah oh there's so many things about it it's um, a beautiful what do they call that John Adams style mm -hmm. um, 
home. It's not a it's test, not... by the way. I realise it, it may seem like I'm testing you, and I'm not. Yes, yeah, so ch- checking all the boxes. <laughs> no, but um, the takeaway, I mean, for me, it's being an American, it's largely um, unfamiliar um, right. sort of architecture and um, is it the impo- art. Is it imposing? No, or somehow it's... it. When I look at it, that's that's the amazing thing about it because if I were to describe it, it would sound largely intimidating. But something about it is so warm mm, and mm. natural, and it and it comes from I guess the from from Bob and Elizabeth. They're just such warm, though they're so just cultured and um, incredibly brilliant people. It's just such a warm and inviting mm. space. There's unbelievable art just there's mm. not an inch to spare you know yeah. around and the it's room. very personal I th- I mean, it when is I was so looking at personal it, very personal very bright uh there's a lot of stuff about light they're clearly sort of um they clearly respond to art that that has light front and center and colors and and like I say, I think when I was looking around, I felt as though I was, even though it was a ridiculously large room, or it felt like a ridiculously large room, it did feel like somebody's home. Yes. And as though they had just cleared the furniture and there are rows of chairs and we just sit down and listen to lovely music and then we go, it's a strange, lovely thing. Yeah, and even the furniture wasn't cleared, it was just faced in a single direction, you know, and yeah, the front row got the couches. Yes, I was invited to go and sit in the front row, but I thought that would be a bit awkward. I didn't really want to stare at you playing. I just thought somebody else should stare at you playing. Yeah, well, it was sweet. This um, family, I think, was seated in the front, and it was this uh, young boy, a violinist, who I think came across one of my YouTube videos three years ago, and they apparently, from what they said, they were desperately looking for me uh, for for a performance um, somewhere in their vicinity here in London, and they finally saw it, and so YouTube is what brought them, and so they were sitting there in the front, but... That was, that's always so sweet to see very young people at any of these concerts and that they were in the front row. I was, I was grateful that it wasn't, yeah, so... Yeah, well, you see, I would have sat in, like in that. Suit, I would have sat yeah. with folded arms. <laughs> folded and then, arms. And, and, and then there would have been an awkward moment today where you went, oh, it's you. <laughs> yeah, oh, you were the one that made my night And you miserable. came with a notebook as well. Why? <laughs> <laughs> nope, didn't see you at all. So. No, I sat at the back. I sat at the back. No, but it's still even, uh, yeah, even with people at such close proximity, it's something about, I was, I was nervous coming here too, because it was my first um, London recital um, overseas, and everybody was so warm, and despite my being determined to be just deathly nervous for this concert, I wasn't, because everybody there was so attentive, the the Mm. energy was so beautiful, Bob and Elizabeth are such warm, welcoming people, it wasn't their first rodeo, they've had these (laughs) concerts so many times, Um, and my um, piano partner, Amy Yang, she's also just such a beautifully poetic person, um, and artist to have around. So everything about it was just so convivial and, and beautiful. It's it's hard to describe yeah. without being there. But I think what you said about the light in the room, too. Um, there was no fireplace going, but there might as well have been. There was yes. just something about it that was... I mean, it also was quite literally very warm. Oh, was it? <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, I see, I wasn't. It got hot no. near the end. Um, I think that might have been because of your industry. <laughs> Let's put it down to that because the rest of us were really quite cool. Okay, <laughs> no, might have been. Yeah, no, I yeah, yeah, yeah. A few notes that were being played. Um, yeah, I uh, listened to the Schubert for the first time. I was blown away by the Schubert, um, and I hear at one point I heard a lot of variations. I don't mm-hmm. know what section that was. Was that the Andantino or? The, yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and they were almost hypnotic variations. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the heat in the room that you didn't no, notice. No, no, okay, so, yes, <laughs> You're sorry, hallucinating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clearly, you are self-deprecating. Um, uh, uh, no, I found I was blown away by it. That, that's essentially my top line, and that's partly to do with partly to do with the music, obviously to do with the performer. Um, <laughs> but listening to it back on CD this morning, there were two things I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one was. The opening is an absolute bastard, isn't it? 
than he's ink. Because it strikes me that well, because, yeah, of, because of the actually, as violinist, yeah. you have absolutely no control over how that piece is starting. Yeah, well, and I and I found I sort of felt like <gasps> I'd want I want to be able to start together. I know it's not written for, for for both of you to start together, but because you are having to relinquish control of this artistic expression right from the beginning of the work. that that was your impression because it is um, in the true sense of the word awesome that that introduction that beginning and um, if Amy were here she might say also that she largely has no control <laughs> over right. how that opening is right. because I know for pianists um, a lot of pianists just refuse to play the piece um, at all um, let alone live because it's just so difficult and yes. you're at um, the mercy of whatever beast of a piano is in front of you yes. um, and it's marked pianissimo and all these as tremolos. well as shaking and uh, essentially tremor yeah yes in the hand. yeah yeah and I think um, the way the undulations are in the hands um, is such a way that's just very unnatural for the hands because mm. you want to you know if you want both pinkies down and then both thumbs down but it's actually um, hinkies you say pinkies pinky oh no okay. what is it what <laughs> no, is it no I the... just wanted to check that's all I did I've not heard it described as a pinky. What do you call it? A fifth finger. A fifth finger? <laughs> yes. So you call the thumbs, you consider the thumbs, thumbs a finger? Yeah. No. No, this is the first finger. Oh, 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 no, the, the fourth, fourth finger. <laughs> the fourth finger. <laughs> fifth digit, maybe. Yes, okay, right, sorry. You were saying anyway, the chords. This the... is all crucial to... Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know how to describe that for somebody who's not watching me, but yes. at least there's um, a parallel motion going on as opposed to a mirroring motion of the hands, uh -huh. which is easier uh -huh. to execute. So anyway, all, all that to say, it's just a nightmare for the pianist. Um, and then <laughs> the violinist comes in, and it's actually, in a way, the more terrified I am, I think the more it um, services the music in that opening, because the the first note is it just goes on forever and it's as if um ideally if it's executed well the audience should for a while just think did did she start playing or did she not am i imagining is has there a mosquito in my mistake? ear <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes yeah has she come in the bar early yeah, yeah it's kind of just like a glow comes over the piano part and it's just absolutely otherworldly which is something so striking I think about all of Schubert's can music. you can you reveal at what point both both of you would sort of naturally go okay we've reached we've reached past the difficult opening um, and now things are 
we're, we're in the zone. Obviously, you're in the zone when you're when you're playing right at the beginning. I'm just wondering whether, if if it is a uh, a bastard of a, of an opening, at what point do both musicians go? Everything's fine now. You know, I'd say Amy and I are probably still texting at this moment with PTSD. I don't know if we're <laughs> out of it yet. Right. Okay, so it's all. <laughs> so like the that. whole the whole thing is, um, it's it's terrifying in in the most beautiful way it's 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 such a journey but there's there's no real moment of repose okay no um and i i think because the the music is just so awfully gorgeous even when the variations start that that melody is presented um zymir gegrust excuse my german um but it's it's, very uh, good and it's very competent (laughs) Very good. I'm, I'm partly German. Right. So, so on, one yeah. actually would yeah. hope that you, can believe, that you can pronounce it. Yeah, I know. I'm going to get some hate mail after all that. Um, so Schubert steals from a melody of his own, a song. Um, and I would say, technically speaking, it's not so difficult. But just because of the, the meaning and the poignancy that's inherent in his music, um, one can never really let up when you're playing Schubert. It's all just so profound, and and the turmoil that he went through in his life, and died so young, and it's just phenomenal that somebody so young wrote such wise music. There are just so many things that are going through my mind, at least when I'm playing anything of Schubert's. That none of it is. Um, it, it may appear simple on the page, but it never is simple, and it's certainly never easy. I hear, um, sorry, I hear detail, I hear a love of detail um, when you're playing. So I heard lots of detail in phrases that perhaps mm-hmm. other, other instrumentalists wouldn't necessarily throw away but wouldn't sort of devote as much detail to. Is that, is that a deliberate thing for you? Um, it's, it's, I would call it almost a fault of oh. mine oh. <laughs> I've been um, this is awkward <laughs> I, I mean I have to keep on with the deprecation okay, fine, right? right so fine, just fine. on brand <laughs> okay fine well we can we can we can wrestle over that because I'm, okay. I'm also pro self-deprecation <laughs> yeah I, I mean I think a lot of us are it's just the nature of the it's like you're British. <laughs> is it, why, thank you. Maybe I just like yeah, acclimating quickly, except for not to the time zone. <laughs> need more caffeine. Um, no, it's just the nature of being in a room for hours and criticizing what you're doing and trying to improve. I mean, how else could we be? But um, I, I've always been interested in, in details, and a lot of my friends actually tease me for how slowly I go about everything in my life because I'm just kind of stopping to smell all the roses but I've been trying actually the Michael Torkey piece was a great lesson for me in terms of um, seeing the forest from the trees because there's a lot of details um, and roses to mm-hmm. sniff yes. in the Torkey but and it's then not very much time to smell them either not much time to smell them and if you do smell them or let the audience smell, maybe I'll go away from that analogy now. (laughs) Um, It does a disservice to the music. Um, And and sometimes um, you need to let the details go because the larger scope is what needs to be seen. Um, But I find, at least in the form of a fantasy, which is free form, you can actually get away with smelling the roses and um, reveling in the details because it is a piece that is inspired by flight of fancy. Um, and so for me, all of the details are very important in Schubert. But I just, I just love inhabiting that space. And in performance, um, being in the moment is um, a place to be. Um, and it's very much in your favor. Because if you're thinking back thinking ahead you aren't um present and you aren't doing the the music that you're playing um a service by by thinking in that way but again i a lot of teachers have worked with me they say you know you're they say you're really good tessa at all the details but then um this was a criticism given to me years ago um 
that the details um, also need to relate to the music as a whole. So that's how I've been trying to digest oh, so it it's recently. Not, it's, not, it's not detail for detail's sake. It's detail as long as it contributes to the end product. Yes. Right. So there, there are all these tiny details, but there's also a hierarchy within those details. You how know, are like you with interior design? <laughs> Actually, design. not not great. I've gotten a little better. Right. Okay. So, um, so that detail isn't reflected in interior design. If anything, I'm I'm a minimalist right. when it comes to. Well, it's easy in that way, isn't it? Really, yeah. Really. Yeah. And and I think there's there's so much going on in my head that if I have too much visual distraction in the interior I'm just I'm a total goner okay, fair <laughs> uh, last thing to ask you about is the instrument so I yep. was struck by last night I was struck by that there was a sort of a distinctive sound to your instrument which I thought oh well I'm probably drunk I wasn't drunk I was very much sober <laughs> but or at least I had a glass or two um, uh, and then I listened to the album and I heard the same sound Mm. And this is the, I'm basically at the edge of my experience in terms of articulating what sort of sound that is, but it sounded quite earthy. Uh huh. And and I put that down to the instrument. And so I want you to tell me about the instrument. I want yeah. you to tell me if I've heard it right. Well, I um, <coughs> excuse me. I'm I'm honoured that you said that because actually the instrument on the recording is different from the oh. instrument that I played. Damn. At the performance, no. But hopefully, what you're getting at is it's that yes, it's that it's not, not the, the instruments, instrument. but it's. So actually, right. I'm going to save this <laughs> podcast for the rest of my life right. as proof okay. that it's not the instrument. Fine. Heifetz has been correct all along. You know this story. No, the I very don't. Very famous no. story about um, somebody said. You know, Mr. Heifetz, your performance was so beautiful, but the, the instrument you play, it's, it's so incredible. And he had his violin with him, and he holds the violin up to his ear, and he says, it's funny, I don't hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, okay, so in which case, how are you going about creating that sound? <laughs> um, Let's save this interview. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for the rest of time. Um, no, so thank you for saying that, but... Um, the, the violin that I do play now is a Magini from um, s about 1600. They don't quite know what the date is. Um, but it does have an inherently earthy sound. Um, the Stradivari violin that I played in the recording also has a special sound, but I would say it has a sweeter sheen to it and a little more brilliance than the Magini does. Um, but how do I go about the sound? I... I'm a big believer that sound production is largely um, up to one's inner ear and imagination. Um, I'm not sure I could quite explain what I'm doing technically or physically, because that's also largely so personal. I could. It's wizardry. That's what it's wizardry. That yeah, it's 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 magic, right. and <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, but I just can't um, okay. can't share that information with you. <laughs> no, but I I love um, what I've always been enamored by with the violin is um, that it's a melodic instrument. It's uh, largely you know, cantabile instrument, we can all argue which string instrument is closest to the human voice, but regardless, all of the string instruments the cello. sound like, uh-huh. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's no, what really. you think. <laughs> yeah. You yeah can, no, you're entitled to your opinion, even <laughs> yes, if you're wrong. Yeah, even if you are a clarinetist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, clarinet, though, is such i love the warmth of the i am always You're looking the only for warmth i know who says that really Re you, say, you say that i'm, well, no, I'm the I only person a, that's saying well, yeah, so i have a violinist friend of mine who who hates the clarinet really <laughs> she said to me repeatedly she oh my see gosh. what the point of the clarinet how is. is she still your friend well, <laughs> well she will listen to this so you know we'll have that oh, okay later so okay there, yeah. it's off that's, the record no it's no. very much on the record it's <laughs> going to be very useful um, how do we get onto this? You were just talking about sound production, yeah. I suppose. Um, how did you hit on that? When did you hit on that? Um, I don't know if or it's do you? Maybe it's subconsciously. Um, well, I've always been drawn. My boyfriend's a bass player. What? I played the cello for quite a, a while. Um, quite a while. I played the cello for three weeks. Sorry, the jet quite lag a while. is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so you played the cello. Don't trust anything you're, I'm you're, saying. Your boyfriend's a bassist. Yeah, I'm. I'm just drawn to the lords of the low end, right. okay. if you will. Yeah, I just, I just love bassy tones. I don't know if it's just how I hear. I, um, I have chronic ear infections. Maybe I just hear too much upper partials, and so I, I like. You, you know, I just, oh. I have no idea what it is, but I like warm sound mm. and i i love um raw I, I just love that you use the word earthy because yes. that's something that i'm drawn to i i almost feel like the more human and earthy and worldly the sound is on an instrument and in a piece without words the more it actually transports us away from the world because it's ironic in a way to have um Music, which is, I would say, the nearest thing to God, if you believe in that sort of thing, um, to have this otherworldly creation with a very distinctly human sound that we associate very deeply with. Um, so that's something that I look for, because Schubert's music, for instance, is just so unbelievably sublime and untouchable. But then if you have a very human sound to it it will draw people in and they won't understand why and and hopefully be transported to another place which i think is the purpose of this music um so so that's that's something um that i look for also when i attend performances and when i'm listening to other people there's um almost a a fragile and raw quality to a sound um an unrefined sound that is almost pure to me. I don't know, there's, there's an irony to it all that is really captivating. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.